The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Good afternoon. May I have your attention, please? Good people of Metropolis, I'm Perry White, editor of the Daily Planet. Thank you, thank you. And with me today is Mr. Bill Church, who's chairman of the CallSmart discount chain. He's asked me to make the announcement that uh, his company and the Daily Planet are co-sponsoring a charity ball for the Urban Redevelopment Fund. And uh, now I think Bill has a few words to say to everybody. Come on up here, Bill. Thank you, Perry. Uh, I, I just want to say how glad I am to be part of this uh, great city. We're not just here to do business, we're here to be part of your lives. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 10th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Five one nine six six one thirty six hundred is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And Robert, you want to introduce our in-studio guest today for the entire show? Certainly, Bob. Yes, in studio we have Arnon Kaplansky, who is a builder of businesses and a builder of housing here in the city of London. He's also in the uh, race for mayor. He's going to be running on as London's common sense mayoral candidate. Welcome to the studio, Arnon. Thank you very much for having me here. You know, Arnon, after hearing some of your stories about your development issues with the city, I know that has a lot to do with your incentive to run for mayor, and you certainly have a message that you'd like to bring to Londoners, and I imagine that mostly takes the form of the, your story with the city, which I have to say reminds me an awful lot of Howard Rourke and the Fountainhead. It yes. just does uh, some of the themes that, that go along with it. And uh, the Towers of Spite, there was actually that scene in the Fountainhead where what was a Tower of Spite was a compromise that was created between Howard Rourke and, and the people that screwed him up for his building. But you certainly have some stories to tell. How, how what, what finally pushed you over the edge that you had to take a step like this to get your story out and to, to hopefully have an impact on this city's municipal affairs? Well, after uh, 25 years of trying to create business uh, growth uh, jobs, I came to the realization that uh, the red tape and the bureaucracy is uh, just choking the local economy. And uh, I thought that uh, since I have so much experience uh, dealing with City Hall uh, with all its departments, I'm familiar with all of the, poli the policies and the bylaws. Uh, I thought that I could uh, make a difference by running because uh, I know exactly what to do. I think that uh, for me it will take about two years to correct the situation here. That's <laughs> the reason why I'm running. Well, we've only got an hour. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you walk us through a bit of this, some of the buildings and the um, houses that you've created in the city. I understand that you moved here in 1984. I moved to Canada in 1984 and to London uh, in about 87. And since 87, how many buildings have you built in the city? 
Well, I didn't count them, but quite a bit. Uh, I could have done much more, not, uh, not for the bureaucracy, uh, but uh, I concentrated on infield development. So you're opposed to suburban sprawl, or is that just not interest you? Uh, it's not interesting me. Like, uh, if people uh, need this kind of housing, uh, some other developers can provide it. I believe that uh, the city should grow up before it's going out. Mm-hmm. I think it will make uh, much more sense. It will cost less money for the taxpayers. And I thought that, this, that that's the way to go. And therefore, I concentrate on that kind of development. Now, infill development, can you just explain that? Infield development is using the existing infrastructure, is not taking farmland, is not uh, uh, disturbing the areas around the city. It's uh, since we have the services already, we have the transportation, we have the bus uh, systems, uh, we should uh, utilize it in a much better way. That's also will eliminate uh, car rides. Uh, it will make it a better city. People will walk in the street, uh, you know, the downtown will be more vibrant. And that's that was my philosophy. So you take um, uh, a neighborhood or a piece of property where the there it's either not being used or it's an old building that's dilapidated and it's time for it to, to be torn down, and you put in something new. Now the towers of spite, as they're called, certainly don't fit in with the neighborhood uh, near the near the university here. I don't know if people are familiar with it uh, near the corner of Richmond and Huron, in one block to the west. Um, why those structures in that fashion? They're f- three stories high, <coughs> when everything around them, I think, is, is either one story or two story, and they're shaped like, um, like, like pill boxes with no windows on one or two sides, and people are, it's very, it's very controversial. Well, why that? Well, I, I wanted to show, <laughs> I mean, what I proposed there uh, through the years, I had uh, three different proposals. And uh, what I showed uh, there on my proposal were not complying with the zoning bylaws. Uh, those buildings that I constructed are complying with the zoning bylaws. So this is what I was able to do in uh, in complying with the with the bylaw. However, uh, if you look into the building at uh, 192 Huron Street, it's a three-story structure. And uh, since I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do, I proposed something that was in the neighborhood. So. It's not really out of character, it is there. The only thing that you see is the rear portion of it. But once, if, if I, I would have let put uh, the front unit, you would see that it's matching exactly number 192 Huron Street just with a pitched roof uh, and not a flat roof. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was not my intention. I built that to show what was able to be under the zoning bylaw. It didn't make sense. And what I proposed there, was beautiful. It, it could have set a stage for development around the university. The city could have had for me about $350,000 in development charges. They chose not to take it, and they chose uh, to spend uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, fighting me. And uh, one more reason that uh, I thought that uh, my proposal would be good for the area is uh, if we can, if we would have concentrated the students' housing one block around the university, it would have stopped the uh, the spall of students into the interior of the neighborhood, and uh, it will eliminate a lot of the problems that the interior of the neighborhoods have now. But the city planning department in London, I'm sorry to say, have no vision. They act on um, the cartel to small interest groups. Uh, maybe in the neighborhood association, there are 50 to 100 people where in the neighborhood itself there may be 20,000 or 30,000. 
but uh, they're misusing the taxpayers' money by turning to small interest groups. Now, this picture that was in the uh, July 2nd London Free Press, th- these are the towers of spite that they're talking about. Is that correct? Well, I, I'd like to call them the Tower of Frustration. Well. It's not the Tower <laughs> of Spite. What specifically did you have planned for these buildings that did not meet the regulations that they forced you to change? Well, the regulation that the city uh, put on the, on the areas did not reflect what was built there. It means that all the houses in that area do not comply with the zoning bylaw. The, the ones that are already there? Yeah, all the houses are uh, legal and conforming uses because they are not complying with the zoning bylaw. The zoning bylaw was put uh, on the area in order to eliminate uh, construction of building of the same size that there, are <coughs> the, the, there is now there. Mm-hmm. So um, my proposal did not uh, comply with the zoning bylaw and uh, and it needed uh, a rezoning application. Uh, some of the proposals that I, I propose for duplexes, for example, the official plan does allow duplexes in the interior of the neighborhood. The official plan in, of 1989 uh, designated uh, the Richmond Street corridor for a higher densities. And for the interior neighborhood, the they would allow uh, a two unit uh, buildings. However, the city is passing official plans to satisfy the Ministry of Housing of the, or the Ministry of the Municipal Affairs, but the zoning bylaw does not reflect the official plan. So, you know, they, they are saying like we, go, we want two, two units building, but they are not allowing it anywhere to be done now. We are 25 years more or less after the official plan and uh, it's still not allowed. Mm. So not only that, you know, even though the, the directed intensification to the Richmond Street corridor, when the proposal, uh, when one of the developer put a proposal for tri- for fourplexes which comply with the official plan, comply with the, uh, with the zoning bylaw, the city chose to fight it and to do something that was illegal. And uh, that case went all the way to the Supreme Court where the city of London asked the Supreme Court to do something illegal the Supreme Court didn't go along with it, slapped the city on its face, and rewarded the developer $500,000 in damages, plus all the legal costs. I estimate that that cost us, the taxpayer of London, about $1.6 million in damages. So, you know, they're making official plan, they're bragging about it, but, uh, you know, they don't practice what they preach. That's the problem here. So, so you're, you're literally saying that <coughs> the official plan contradicts some of the zoning regulations? In the same neighborhood, on the same properties. The official plan is, uh, is not uh, law. It's to direct the <coughs> development of a city for the next 20 to 25 years. Then the zoning bylaw should reflect the, the requirement of the official plan. So let's say 25 years ago, they, they wanted to see two units building in the interior of the neighborhood. So let's say that after five years or 10 years of the official plan, they should even act some bylaws to reflect it, but they don't do that. So the towers of frustration, then, <laughs> are exactly what the city wants. It's uh, I don't know if that's what they want, but that was uh, was allowed. And that's the what zone. they get when their zoning right. bylaws right. are, are, are as they are. I didn't do anything illegal. I've done what the city was uh, allowing me to do. Hmm. Now, it wasn't right. What was right was what I proposed. 
through numerous uh, proposals. You know, my first proposal was for two single-family houses or four-bedroom each that were exactly like the neighbors. But, uh, but uh, they did not want it because they figured it's going to be students. And, uh, you know, they should have come to me and said, listen, Mr. Kapanski, instead of four-bedroom, how about build a three-bedroom house or build a one-bedroom house or build a house with no bedroom? But they haven't said that, you know. They just said no. They kept saying no. They never came with a counteroffer. So that leaves you up, up in the air not knowing what they want, but only knowing what they don't want after you propose something to them. It leads Constantly me, working with negatives. It, it leads me to, be, uh, to work with the uh, zoning bylaw, mm-hmm. which uh, you can see that uh, was not right for that site. So you agree with that? I agree with what? Agree that they don't fit in with um, well, the site. Well, uh, I no, I agree with it. It doesn't fit into the site. Yeah, but it does. Uh, it does. Uh, I, I, I was not the first one to do it on the on the block. It was the one ninety two Huron Street that brought me to that uh, thought of doing it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So the precedent wa- was there already. And now you have nested amongst those three towers of frustration, a black house. Can you tell us the story around that? Well, uh, I proposed. Another tower, after I, I felt uh, my third or fourth proposal for the stuck townhouses, I proposed one more structure of three stories that facing the street that was complying with the zoning bylaw. Uh, the city told me that I'm not complying with the official plan anymore. And uh, I, bought, uh, I bought for their choosing another building that the city actually proposed in the area. There was another uh, proposal by a guy on uh, Talbot Street he demolished a house there and wanted to build exactly the same size house that he demolished. The city didn't let him because the zoning bylaw p- allow you to do less than what it is now. And he appealed to the to the OMB, and for the OMB hearing, the city went and spent our money, hiring an architect, gave him about forty-eight hundred dollars for that way, day or two at the OMB, and he came with a proposal to show that uh, one, uh, like uh, the structure that complies with the zoning bylaw will allow a five-bedroom unit. So the building that I uh, showed them, the one-floor house, the black house, is actually a city proposal. Uh, yeah. They proposed this uh, house on Talbot Street. So I took that one and I showed them compared to my three stories, and I told them, you, you choose which one you want to do, wh- which one you want me to do. They went along with the one-floor uh, one house. And I said that after uh, 25 years of trying to develop this site, where I'm showing them another tower because there was, th- there is an end game plan for it. You know, there, there is a, a thought behind those buildings. They have to be completed. They are not completed now. But by them choosing the one floor house, they're sabotaging my end game plan. And it represents for me a black day for the planning process of the city of London a black day for that corner on Audrey, and a black day for myself. You know, I've been trying to do the right thing for 25 years, and although I'm complying with the zoning bylaw and they don't want to give me the permits to do it, they are manipulating the, uh, the planning process, and they're acting, in my eyes, illegally, using, misusing and abusing public money. They've so, been doing it for so long here. Yeah. The situation of the city with the 8% unemployment and all the, all the mess that is here, that nobody wants to do business here, it's a reflection of, of what's happening in the last 
15 years or 14 years since the consul became like the neighborhood association consuls. So out of frustration, of course, the house is completely black. Everything's black, including the concrete walkway in front of the house, which you've painted black. Yes. Out of, um, I guess, out of uh, frustration and out of, uh, what, what else can you do, I suppose? I wanted, to, to the people, I wanted the people to be aware of what's going on in the city. Like I said, the city is in the situation it is because of the leaders that brought us to it. You know, I, uh, if I'm going to be elected mayor, I would lead by example, by a self-example. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm against urban sprawl, I will not live in urban sprawl. And uh, I will, I will, uh, I will treat public money the same way I treat my money. It is not out just to waste it. Well, you've built your own Cortland homes, and I think it was proper that <laughs> Bob saw in you at least some of the characteristics or the frustrations of uh, the Fountainhead's Howard Rourke. It was amazing how similar it was, and our conversation will continue on the other side of that story that's beginning to sound very familiar from the Fountainhead. Please, Mr. Keating, do let us stop arguing. We've engaged Mr. Prescott and Mr. Webb as your associate designers. What for? Well, it's such a tremendous project. You can afford to share the credit with two fellow architects who need a job. Don't be selfish. Besides, three minds are better than one. But you've accepted my design. Yes, of course, it's excellent, but we must make some improvements. What improvements? Well, the thing's too bare. I think we ought to add a few balconies. Balconies? What for? To give it a human touch. We've got to have some kind of trimming over the entrance. I won't allow it. It's my building. It's my design. But why shouldn't we have any say at all? We want to express our individuality, too. On another man's work? What the heck? Any man's work is public property. I can't let you. Don't you understand? I can't. But, Peter, why not? What's the matter? You never fought with your clients before. Is there anything different in this case? But they're ruining the building. You know they are. Oh, I suppose so. What do you care? You made a contract with me that Cortland be built exactly as I designed it. I did it on that condition and only on that condition. What's a contract? You're old-fashioned, Keating. But I have a contract. Well, what are you going to do about it? Sue us? Go ahead. Try it. You'll find that you can't sue us. But you have no right to do this. What are rights, Peter? Whose rights? Arrest me. I'll talk at the trial. We don't have to wait for the trial to convict him. Howard Rourke is guilty by his very nature. It is whispered that he designed Cortland. What if he did? Society needed a housing project. It was his duty to sacrifice his own desires and to contribute any ideas we demanded of him on any terms we chose. Who is society? We are. Man can be permitted to exist only in order to serve others. He must be nothing but a tool for the satisfaction of their needs. Self-sacrifice is the law of our age. The man who refuses to submit and to serve, Howard Rock, the supreme egoist, is the man who must be destroyed. We have never learned to understand what is greatness in man. Self-sacrifice, we drool, is the ultimate virtue. Let's stop and think. 
Can a man sacrifice his integrity, his rights, his freedom, his convictions, the honesty of his feeling, the independence of his thought? These are a man's supreme possessions. To what must he sacrifice them? To whom? Self-sacrifice? But it is precisely the self that cannot and must not be sacrificed. A man's self is his spirit. It is the unsacrificed self that we must respect in man above all. And where do we find it? In a man like Howard Rock. We're in studio with mayoralty candidate Arnon Kaplansky, and, you know, just listen to that little bit from the Fountainhead. Do you get the feeling when you're working with City Hall that they have that opinion that any man's work is public property and they can just do with it what they want? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, right now, uh, if you propose something, uh, you have to go in front of the Urban Design Peer Review Committee. It's a bunch of people, people that volunteer to do the work, but some of them are actually working as a consultant. Like I mentioned before, the architect that designed one, the one-floor house. He's in that committee. And they sit there and they criticize your work. And, uh, you know, Bob, they, they, the way I feel with this city, they try to bankrupt me. They, they were trying to drive me into bankruptcy uh, by the way they treated me, and not only me, a lot of other people. I can give you an example. Uh, right now, I'm trying to develop a restaurant on an empty lot. Mm-hmm. The empty lot does not generate to the city much uh, property tax. Uh, so I proposed them, uh, to them a restaurant. It's called the French Quarter from New Orleans. I went to the library with my designer, and we picked up a book from the French Quarter in New Orleans, and we designed a beautiful building that the potential tenant really, really liked. It would be a signature building for him, one of a kind, the only one in the world. When I applied for the seat to the city and they sent me to the Urban Design Peer Review Committee, they will criticize the work. And they criticized one bay window in the center of the building. We came up with this bay window in the, in the center in order to separate between the uses, between the retail and the restaurant. But uh, I had to spend 10 weeks fighting with them not to move that bay window. Now, in the meantime, did the you win or did you lose that one? I won. Okay. But, uh, but uh, I lost the 10 weeks and I might have lost the tenant also. Time will tell if I lost the tenant because I'm supposed to give him the building at a certain date. But, uh, you know, when I went in front of the committee, uh, they criticized the bay window. They criticized also uh, the, the look of the building. They wanted the, a more commercial look. And they, uh, they were, in the beginning, they were demanding for me to put a second story. And when I explained to them that it was hard enough to find a tenant for the first story and that the restaurant does not want a second story uh, uh, built on top of it, then they gave it up. But in the meantime, I spent 10 weeks on that process. And it's not the, it's not the only one. You know, I've been subjected to, do it, to this for 25 years. You know, I crossed from the university gates. I own those four buildings. And what I proposed for them was one single building to mimic the, uh, the university residence inside the, the, uh, the gates, which was a beautiful building, all stone, just beautiful. They pushed me to do the four buildings separately. And they keep doing it all the time. You know, my proposals are very sensitive to the areas. And then when they try, try uh, start to mingle with my proposal and start putting the red tape of me, things are changing and the buildings are not the way I want them to be. I have another example. My first actually development in London in 1988, 
I propose uh, four buildings facing the street, and they have made me uh, turn the building sideways, and the building is there, and it is not right. You know, they are mingling with the process, they are misusing the planning, uh, the planning process, and again, and I hate to repeat myself, but I will, the city situation with the unemployment, with the lack of business, is because was w- what all these process are leading us to do. Nobody Th- wants to do business in London anymore. This sounds very personal. Um, do you think it's a personal attack on Arnon Komplansky, or is this the way they treat all infill developers or all developers Maybe in the city? Maybe it's personal to them. Yeah. Uh, I think I think somewhat it is personal. It's been a long, uh, a long uh, haul. You know, it's 25 years. But they are not doing it only to me. I'm not speaking here, and I'm not running for mayor because of me. I'm running to for the rest of the business people. You know, I hear I hear a lot of people that wants to create business here, wants to create jobs here. Once they go to the city hall, they had enough. Last week I was at city hall, and uh, I've seen a, a Asian person that bought a piece of land on down the street, and you could see as he walked through the door. He had a smile on his face because he thought that he's going to make business, he's going to create jobs, and he's going to make money. And I was standing on the side just watching the way he spoke to the administration. And within half an hour, his face went down. He became depressed. He, I could see it. So I waited for him for him to finish. And then I walked out uh, outside with him and I talked to him. And I've told to his consultant, you know, you must, you must tell him and he must be aware that the process that he's going to go through will take him two years. And ask him if he can withhold that because you have to carry the property, you have to pay insurance, you have to pay a lot of expenses. And as we walked out from City Hall, from the door at City Hall, and I want to give him my card because I've been told I cannot, uh, I cannot uh, talk to people about my election inside the building, I cannot campaign inside <laughs> the building. Once, uh, once I stepped outside with him and I've seen his wife there with two kids uh, two twins in the stroller. I felt really bad because I know what those, what family is going to go through. Now these are small developers. I mean, you're not a big developer. You've made some nice buildings in town, but you're nothing like the Siftons or the Tricars or anything like that, who have very, very deep pockets, and it seems to me are basically sprawling this city out willy nilly. Um, are they being treated differently than, say, the infill developer, the smaller guy? Yeah, I believe so because, you know, when you do urban sport, the cows do not complain. Uh, no. And when you do infill development, there's always one or two neighbors that will complain. Mm-hmm. And the whole process uh, of infill, uh, you know, the, the council members, if they have two or three people that complain about a certain neighborhood, they will go with the people because uh, they're looking at voters. They're going to vote for them. They don't think of the city as a whole, what's benefit the city as a whole. They're just thinking about their seat at the council. And when they see three, four people objecting to it, they, si- they go along with them because they know for sure they, th- those people will vote for them. I can give you an example if I have the time. Well, let's keep the example for after the break. But very quickly, um, this seems to be contradictory to our new mayor, Joni Beckler's um, ideas of, develop- of, of against suburban sprawl and more infill development. You're an infill developer, and you're being treated like this, as like other infill developers are. And and yet the suburban sprawl people, and I'm neither for nor against suburban sprawl at the moment, but I, can, I have opinions about it, but they seem to be given carte blanche to do as they will, seem to be, I don't know the particulars. Isn't that contradictory for Joni Beckler and, and, and the planning committees and all that? 
Absolutely, but uh, I don't want to start uh, getting personal here, but mm. if you're looking at the current mayor, I mean, she, she fought urban sport since she's been here. And together with Infield also. I mean, she's saying she's for Infield, but if you look at her voting pattern, it was, uh, I would say, 95%. No. But for her to fight urban sport and then to live in urban sport, and not, no, not only living there, you know, I, I practice what I preach. And if she uh, is against urban sport, she should not live in one. Not only this, you know, with the same Sifton you're talking about, wanted to build two houses that were about five houses down from Johnny Beckler, Instead of letting him do that and collect the uh, de- development fees and the extra taxes, the city somehow end up buying the lot from Sifton for $550,000 plus $150,000 uh, they gave up on a development charge or park education. So it cost us $700,000 not to have two houses that are five houses uh, down from Johnny Beckler. So, you know, practice what you preach. That's what mm. I t- say. Interesting. Um, as we go to the break here, we're going to be hearing from someone who uh, was giving a series of lectures across North America. His name is Andres Duwani, and he had a lecture uh, entitled Rethinking Suburban Sprawl, which was actually hosted by the Ontario government back in the early 90s and was given at the University of Toronto. Now, we have a sampling of that. He talks about unsustainable development, which relates to traffic congestion and capacity. And it's from a slideshow. And this is a slideshow that he actually, it's the same, it's the same presentation that he gave in San Antonio. And um, in this sampling from his slideshow, he's showing aerial examples of poor versus good city planning in different cities across the continent. And one of the main photos he's concerned with in the following audio bite is an aerial view of a development that looks very much like what you might find around any of London's major retail and and or industrial malls. You know, they have the mall in the center, huge parking lot around it, and then a huge one sidewalk that goes around the, the far perimeter, like 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 you know, putting it all in a box. And he has some very interesting things to say about building codes in various communities across U.S. and Canada. And of course, in this case, he's speaking to an audience in. San Antonio and we'll be back after this break. Now what is this code what is this code concerned about? Well perfectly objectively the most important thing that this code is concerned about is that cars should be happy. (laughs) You see these are happy cars because they never have to stack up more than six at a time they make nice easy turns they don't strain their little steering wheels doing that. Now The other thing that this code is terribly concerned about is that the uses not be mixed. It's very, very important to the planners of Virginia Beach that everything here be retail. This is a shopping center or or a retail area. The offices where you work are elsewhere. The residential is elsewhere. Everything that you see here, whether it's big or small, this is a very big mall here, and then there's a tiny little bank and a couple of medium-sized eating places. Everything here is of a single use, which is retail. Now, let's talk about this as an environment. It's not that these planners don't care about people. Obviously, there's a sidewalk code somewhere here. (laughs) But you know perfectly well from experience that only indigents are to be found in places like that. It is actually... That kind of environment, is, it is embarrassing to be seen walking, admit it, in a place like this. Only the underclass is found as a pedestrian here. There's a sidewalk, but it's a completely unworkable sidewalk. 
Uh, after one generation of this kind of planner, of planning, most planners have said, have looked at it and said, this, this doesn't look so good. Let's pass additional ordinances, for example, that require trees in the parking lot and require berms. But that isn't the issue at all. The problem with this is not that it is ugly. The problem is that it doesn't work. It can't be sustained. And I'm going to show you some beautiful suburban sprawl later on. So don't be confused by sign ordinances, berms, and landscape. Those are fine, but they're only cosmetic. They really don't get at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that in the end, in the end, this cannot be sustained. Because regardless of the number of lanes that are built, there are never enough lanes. What a city needs to decide, a city like yourself, is whether you want traffic congestion is a constant. It's a constant because traffic, and this has been known since the 1950s, traffic will grow to fill capacity. What you need to decide is whether the city of San Antonio would like to have its, its uh, allotment of traffic congestion at four lanes, or whether you would like your traffic congestion at eight lanes, or your traffic congestion at 12 lanes, or at 24 lanes, or, as is being proposed in Miami, they would like to deliver our traffic congestion at 44 lanes, which is what I-95 has to be. But traffic congestion is a constant, and it is not solved, and never has been solved, and cannot be solved by the building of highways. It is solved by mixed-use planning. What you do is you eliminate trips or you shorten trips. You do not build highways, because as soon as you build highways, people use them. Technically, what happens is that as long as traffic flows, people make basically idiotic decisions about where they live relative to where they work. They will, if, if, it is only five, if, it's, if it is only 20 minutes to get from the workplace to the house that I like, I will buy that house because it has skylights over the bathroom or because, you know, it's $2 less per square foot or whatever, rather than factoring in that that 20 minutes is a large part of my life. And besides, that 20 minutes turns into 40 minutes and then turns into an hour and then into an hour and a half commute. When you have friction, in traffic, people begin, people factor in that additional uh, information, how far am I from work? And that is ultimately the solution, or at least the stabilization of the traffic problem. Let me describe how different this is from this, because it's backwards in almost every way. If you look at this area here, all the buildings here, what they have in common is that they're small. What they don't have in common is that they're a single use. See, over here you have houses, you have boarding houses, you have bed and breakfast inns, you have corner stores, you have um, uh, pr uh, medical practitioners, you have uh, architects and lawyers in operation, but you even have churches. What they have in common is that the buildings are all small, therefore they are compatible. This is completely different from the kind of coding that occurs here in which the buildings can be large or small, but they're a single use. Over in this area, there are buildings that are medium-sized, and then buildings that are very large. You see, it's small buildings with small buildings, large buildings with large buildings. 
All of these things are compatible as long as, they use it, as long as the sizes are similar. So, you see, the codes are written completely differently. The code that makes this place worries about how building or is concerned about how buildings behave in terms of physical size and disposition relative to the street. As long as the buildings are pulled up to the street and they're not over a certain size, they're compatible. Well, that's the private realm. That's how the private realm works here. Now, the public realm is also different. This, these streets here are all small and they're all complex. Traffic flows slowly in them. This street is a very simple street. It's really a highway. It's, it's a very simple street. Only one thing happens here. The only thing that happens here is that cars flow. Pedestrians don't. Trees don't exist. Buildings don't align this street. It's only for cars. The public realm is only for cars in this model. Here, the public realm contains not only cars that move, but cars that park, uh, trees on the s sidewalks and buildings. It's a public realm which is, because it's complex, is friendly to both cars and pedestrians. How is this achieved? It's achieved because it's a network of streets, you see. There are many, many different ways of getting from anywhere to anywhere else. As a result of that, no one street has to be large. And that was um, Andres Duani from his Rethinking Suburban Sprawl uh, video that you can check out online. Just look up the name, and it's spelt A-N-D-R-E-S-D-U-A-N-I. And there are several versions of that same presentation online, aren't there, Robert? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I saw that before the Internet, really, uh, in 1991. Yes. On, I think it was TVO or something like that. I mailed away to to the University right. of Toronto, and they sent me a, a VHS cassette tape of that presentation. Now, this one is, of course, done in San Antonio, right. but it's the exact same presentation. Precisely. And it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm hoping at some point in the near future to do a show on the points that Andrew Dwani brings up in a neo-urbanism. Did, did you hear anything there that you related to, Arnon? Uh, <coughs> almost everything. Yeah. You know, like I've been preaching that for 25 years. That's why I'm an infield developer. We have to uh, mix the uses. We cannot have just one use uh, everywhere. Uh, there was a, a case just lately with a bag lady on Palmal Street, uh, which uh, it, it was an old variety store that was converted to a coffee shop. I think uh, things like this should be encouraged. It has to be mixed use. Uh, it doesn't have to be just residential. Uh, you can uh, you can make hubs in the residential areas that uh, for the community to come to get together to to talk and to enjoy themselves. Uh, so I gave you the example of the bag lady. That was uh, now just uh, to be clear before you go any further. The bag lady was the name of the place. Yes, we're not uh, talking about a bag lady. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Okay. It was the name of the place. <laughs> it's a corner mimic, shop. Yeah, she's trying to mimic a, a, a store from the 1950s. And it, uh, it was uh, well received by the community, and it should. But uh, on another note, uh, a guy just a block uh, out uh, to the west of it was trying to make uh, a coffee shop. Uh, they call it the locomotive uh, coffee shop. And he, he was faced with opposition, and he had to go to the OMB. So I think that uh, things like this should be encouraged. What, uh, what the architect was speaking about, I, I agree with him 100%. But uh, the, the problem is that uh, the planners of the city, they deal with too much politics. You know, they're getting involved with politicians. They are in front of the politician most of the time. The planners think that they are the managers of the city. And uh, they neglect their planning. They become political puppets. And uh, that's why the city uh, looks the way it is. 
That's an interesting observation. You know, I haven't asked you a question. I usually ask everyone who's dealing with municipal um, politics in general. Is Do you see City Hall, the City of London, primarily as a corporation, the corporation of the City of London, or as a government or a hybrid of both? Because isn't that where some of the problems arise? Well, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a government. And... Uh, it is it is uh, have a, a large uh, budget you know it should be run like a business but uh, it is a government you know it and it's there to provide us uh, security uh, provide us uh, services in in uh, reasonable rates but uh, they want to be business people also and uh, the buying uh, assets and uh, doing things that really end up costing the taxpayers money. How, how, how much would you say that they're influenced by provincial politics? Because we can certainly see the wind government moving in the exact opposite direction of mixed-use planning because they're obviously planning for high-speed corridors and, and moving people from vast distances to vast distances just so they can get to work and back and forth. Uh, they're obviously going in the opposite direction. Is that part of the greater plan? Is Is the city... Um, buying into this? Are they getting some kind of payoff from the province, which is why they're doing all this? Sometimes I always say, follow the money, see who, where it's coming from. Well, I, I personally don't know, but uh, what what I know, the provincial uh, policy, it's the provincial policy statement on, on uh, development. And uh, the province at the time, they are calling for intensification. Uh, the city... Again, preparing the only uh, official plan to reflect that, but uh, never actually do anything about it. They're actually taking, in some of my cases, they took the provincial policy statement, which encouraged intensification and infill, and they're using it against it. So, you know, it's a body on its own, you know. It, it does uh, have to answer to provincial policies, but uh, it really does whatever it wants. I was thinking, too, that you know, on the one hand, okay, you keep, we keep hearing about an official plan as though there is a plan in place. On the other hand, we keep hearing about a process called Rethink London, which would suggest there's no plan in place and they're looking for one. Um, what's the, what's the uh, validity <laughs> of these plans? Are they just sounding boards for the public and then they go off and do their own business anyway? Or do they actually hold any weight with the uh, development in the city? Well, uh, to me, it's a, a whole big hoax of spending taxpayers' money. Because, like I said earlier, uh, they had an official plan in 1989. There was nothing wrong with that official plan. And uh, you just have to fulfill what you seen to be happening in the next 25 years, what they've seen in 1989. But they don't do that, you know. So uh, they had the official plan in 89. Then in 96, they had Vision 96. And then in 2000, they had the Millennium 2000. And every time, it's just an exercise for bureaucrats to create jobs for themselves. They are, uh, they are not actually uh, practicing what they preach, and uh, they're creating jobs for themselves. So all this, all this notion of uh, rethink London uh, is just a waste of money, if you ask me. The same as they're doing the lobby in the, down in the city hall, you know. They created a new lobby because they think it's going to help business. They spend about $180,000 of our money, and they have few nice furnitures there. You think that's going to increase business? I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, I think that they are in it only for themselves. They're creating bureaucracy and red tape in order to create jobs from themselves. But are they also responding to some of the vocal uh, citizens in London 
who want to have input into how the city is is growing. And by offering them an opportunity to stand before them and say, we think that the city should look like this, they're basically placating the vocal minority of Londoners who want to have their fingers in everybody else's backyard. Absolutely. And then after they placate them, city goes off and does what it wants anyway because they're the ones that are elected and paid to do to run the city, not these environmental groups, heritage groups, you know, um, people who, like I say, want to have their fingers in everybody else's uh, business. Yes, uh, you know, it's really, it's uh, not planning of the planning of the city. They're letting the, the kind of, they're calling it a common citizen, but I don't think it's a common citizen uh, to come up with ideas. Uh, if you are a planner and you learn planning, uh, why don't you plan and uh, bring forward uh, things? You know, I think that the job of, uh, of a municipal council is to scrutinize what the planners do and not tell them what to do and not for the planner to go and ask the neighbors that uh, is working uh, I don't know what job is working about planning and development and how they want their neighborhood to be developed you know uh, people are uh, temporary and uh, people are eventually going to change and things going to change but uh, they are telling to small interest groups instead of looking for the benefit for the, uh, of the city as a whole now, you know, planning is not about just people. Plan- planning is about putting people together as masses. It's not per se, you know, Joe, John doesn't want uh, a duplex beside him, therefore du- duplexes are not uh, going to be beside him. We have to look the, uh, for the city as a whole, not, in, not as individual people. You know, we have to look at the trends of how people are going to live together, how they're going to communicate, how, where they're going to walk. You know, growth is about jobs also. And, uh, and wouldn't, wouldn't the city argue that that's exactly what it's doing? It can argue whatever it's In terms of its opposition uh, to what you're doing, Okay, for but look, uh, look at the results. Look at the unemployment here. Look at the, the, the debt here. Uh, look what's happening here. You know, they are not uh, encouraging any business. I mean, right now the city changed its view. It wants to put people, people in high-rises, for example. They think that... Uh, uh, people on down the street, everybody should be on high rises, and that's their in their, that's their infill policy or intensification policy. But some people would, would like to live in uh, townhouses, stock townhouses, duplexes, triplexes. Sure. Uh, but these they are not allowing because they're afraid it's going to be students. And we, you know, in in London, we love the students to be here, but we want them to concentrate them in one area that are not going to disturb us. You know. And yet the city's now getting into subsidizing Fanshawe College and bringing students downtown into the same environment that they don't want them in? Is that, does that make sense? Well, uh, the city doesn't make sense. You know, like <laughs> I can give you another example, uh, affordable housing. You know, I'm for affordable housing. You know, like uh, I developed affordable housing. I was the first developer actually to do that in the, the old Siegel building downtown. But I'll give you an example. Uh, the you did that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Siegel Shoes. The Seagull Shoes oh, by yes. the market. Crossed by, uh, no, was that Collie Office? Is that the one by Collie Office? Uh, yes. Ah, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, anyway, so the city, the the education board uh, sold the, the one of the schools in Tekamski. And um, a developer, a non-profit organization uh, got the land and proposed affordable housing there. They came to town with the planning director uh, John Fleming, that it will be 28 units. And uh, the planning director in his uh, justification report to the council said that it's complying 
with a reference plan that was registered on that site, on that block, about some 90 years ago or something like this. They put a recommendation to consul. However, uh, two people or three people from the neighborhood association didn't like the idea that it's going to be 28 uh, affordable housing there and uh, uh, pressured the, uh, the local council uh, member, uh, Denise Brown, and together with uh, Johnny Beckler, they referred it back to the planning uh, director to, for, to reconsider it, really gave him a direction to lower the number of units. He went and changed his recommendation to 22 units, and they put it back to the planning committee, and they approved it. I stood up there and I said, you know, first of all, when you're trying to develop affordable housing, if you're going to cut the number of units by 30%, you just increase your cost by quite a bit. So it's not going to be affordable housing anymore. But I've asked also the mayor to ask the planning director what justification did he use in order to lower the number of units. And the, the, his, his answer was quite blunt. You know, he said, I got instruction from the consul. And I'm saying, uh, this is how we're doing planning in the city. We're listening to the consul. Uh, uh, they, did they, they go to planning school? Did they learn anything? Not only this, I said, you in the 28 units proposal, you are trying to fit in with the old plan. And I said, that reference plan was registered 90 years ago. Is this is the way we're going to do intensification? We're trying to mimic what they've done 90 years ago. And now not only you're not mimicking what was done, you're even doing lower number of units. And this is the way the city run. And well, what a, what a story to go into our next break with. Because <laughs> we're going to take a quick break for a smile. And then we'll return with the wrap-up. Gentlemen, we have two basic suggestions for the design of this architectural block, the residential block. And I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, it's Mr. Wiggin of Ironside and Malone. Morning, gentlemen. Uh, this is a 12-storey block combining classical neo-Georgian features with all the advantages of modern design. Uh, the tenants arrive in the entrance hall here, are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort and pass murals depicting Mediterranean scenes towards the <laughs> rotating knives. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproof. The blood pours down these chutes and the angry flesh slurps into these large... Excuse me. Hmm? Uh, did you say knives? Uh, rotating knives, yes. Are you uh, proposing to slaughter our tenants? Does that not fit in with your plans? <laughs> no, no, we, we wanted a simple block of flats. Ah, I see. I hadn't uh, correctly divined your attitude towards <laughs> your tenants. <laughs> you see, I mainly design slaughterhouses. Yes, did it? Mind you, this is a real beaut. I mean, none of your blood caked on the walls and flesh flying out of the windows, inconveniencing the passers-by with this one. I mean, my life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. <laughs> but we did want a block of flats. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you wouldn't regret it. Think of the tourist trade. No, it's, it's just that we wanted a block of flats and not an abattoir. <laughs> yes, but of course, that's just the sort of 
Blinkered Philistine pig ignorance I've come to expect. Creative garbage, you sit there on your loathsome spotty behind, squeezing blackheads, not caring a tinker's cuss about the struggling artist. You excrement! You lousy, hypocritical, whining toadies! With your lousy coloured TV sets and your Tony Jacklin golf clubs and your bleeding Masonic handshakes! You wouldn't let me join with you, you black, boring bastards! Well, I wouldn't become a Freemason now if you went down on your lousy, stink, you pullulant knees and beg me! Well, we're sorry you feel like that, but we uh, did want a golf flat. Nice though the abattoir is! <laughs> Oh, pfft, the abattoir, that's not important. But if one of you could put in a word for me, I'd love to be a Freemason. Freemasonry opens doors. I mean, I was, I was a bit on edge just now, but, but if I was a Mason, I'd just sit at the back and not get in anyone's way. Thank you. I've got a second-hand apron. Thank you. <laughs> I nearly got in at Hendon. Thank you. And that was not Ernan Komplansky at a planning <laughs> meeting. That was John Cleese from Monty Python. Ernan, <laughs> yes. we only have a few minutes left. Um, can you um, lead us out of the show with your vision for London? Well, my vision is for an attractive, affordable, and safe city that is efficiently and effectively managed. A city like this will attract the elements needed to provide opportunities for London and make this city we can be proud of. I have 26 years of experience I know all the departments, I know all the personals. I don't need to waste time of learning it. It will take me two years, I believe, to clean it out and bring London to become southwestern uh, Ontario capital again. Well, I can, I can envision that if you did become mayor, that there certainly would be a shake-up. And I think that um, just going by some of the buildings that I know that you've created, like uh, the Seagull building, if that's yours, well done, because I've been in that building. It's very nicely well done. Uh, or the um, the, uh, the apartment buildings across from the Tower Gates here, the University on Richmond Street. And what is that, Mayfair? No, Epworth. Epworth, yes. Yeah, they're, they're also uh, very nicely done. And so when you're allowed to do, and I'm probably, you probably had a lot of problems with those buildings too. Yes. But when you're allowed to do some of the things that um, creative minds do do, um, they can turn out quite nicely. And, and why the city would, would prevent somebody like yourself, an infill developer, from, from making this city a better city, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it because right now all I'm seeing is big boxes out, on the, uh, out in the farm fields where the cows don't complain, as you say. And then now that I just heard on the radio the other day out in the southwest end of the city, they're basically going to um, create a huge development down there, another bit of suburban sprawl, which I can talk about a little later, my political opinions about suburban sprawl. But um, I want to thank you for coming in today, Arnon. Um, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I wish you the best in the election. Thank you for your insights. I think you gave everybody a, a view of City Hall that most people don't see. www.arnonkoplansky.ca to find out more about our guest and your candidate for the Mayor of London. And that's it for this week, as we will continue our journey in the right direction next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I'm sorry about that, gentlemen. The second architect is Mr. Levy of Wymiss and Dibble. Oh. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, this is a scale model of the block. Uh, there are 28 storeys with 280 modern apartments. There are three main lifts and two service lifts. Access would be from Dibbingley Road. 
Uh, the structure is built on a central pillar system uh, with cantilevered floors in pre-stressed steel and concrete. Quite frankly, I think the central pillar system may need strengthening a bit. Isn't that going to put the cost up? Uh, it might. Well, I don't know whether I'd worry about strengthening that much. After all, they're not meant to be luxury flats. <laughs> no, I quite agree. I mean, provided the tenants are of light build and relatively sedentary, and uh, <laughs> given a spot of good weather, I think we're onto a winner, yeah? Oh, thank you. Let's have a look at that handshake again in slow motion. 